From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Governor Jared Polis is adamant that fentanyl possession be a felony. You got to think of fentanyl more as a poison than a drug. You remember when people were sending around the toxins in the capital, the white powder uh, that was killing people. What was that? It was a... Oh, anthrax. Anthrax, right. So you think of it more like anthrax. You don't say, okay, you have anthrax. We're going to, you know, send you to a place where we convince you not to have anthrax. That's in our regular conversation at the Capitol. We'll also talk about Metro Denver's poor air quality. Then the sounds wild animals make and why they sound like they do. Biologist David George Haskell takes on evolution of a sonic nature in his new book. He wrote it in Boulder as he listened to critters big and small in the Rockies. He was even listening to trees. I'm Claire from Castle Rock. I'm from Longmont, Colorado. I'm from Fruta. From Wheat Ridge. From Sedalia. Genesee. Kiowa. My wife and I live in Boulder. In Grand Junction. Carbondale. Franktown. Windsor, Colorado. Hi, this is Amanda in Loveland, and I support Colorado Public Radio because it is just that. It's publicly funded by the people who listen to it, and I think that should be very valued in our society today. It's easy to donate at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The Air We Breathe is where we'll start our regular interview with Governor Jared Polis. Front-range air quality has gone from serious to severe, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. At the state capitol Tuesday, the governor and I also discussed fentanyl, lawnmowers, and early childhood education. Governor, thank you for being with us. Always a pleasure, Ryan. The EPA's move comes largely because of ozone. The state issued 65 health alerts last summer in this region, the worst year in more than a decade. Beyond what the EPA is likely to mandate, so cleaner burning gas on the front range and tougher permitting for businesses, what steps is your administration taking to tackle smog? So first, the EPA uh, downgrade is good news. What it does for the state is it gives the state, Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the ability to oversee about 300 more sites, about 200 of those are oil and gas, 100 or other emission sites. So they will face stricter permitting. Yeah, they'll have to do applications to reduce their emissions from about 300 additional sites. So we are ready to work with them on the emission reductions um, that otherwise wouldn't have occurred. I I hear you saying that your administration is not going to oppose the EPA move. There's a public comment period right now. Uh, Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. I thought we were already downgraded, but certainly we're uh, excited to have the ability to reduce emissions with another 300 sites. But the big focus for us, this legislative session, nearing its end, and I'm I'm confident this will be achieved, is a major clean air investment package that includes everything from uh, supporting e-bikes for low-income families, transition of school buses to electric school buses, not only reducing emissions, but benefiting kids' health, saving school districts money so they can put more money into the classroom instead of buying diesel fuel, better air monitoring, uh, and also a lot of work around free bus passes and supporting transit So um, during the ozone season. So the focus of those efforts is really the fact that the state is in very strong fiscal shape, and we have the ability to make a major investment in improving air quality, and that's what we're looking to do, and hopefully we'll be signing that in the next few weeks. The notion that an EPA downgrade of our air quality is good news strikes me as a strange way to frame it. 
Well, it's, it's, it's been expected for years. These 300 sites, the state had did not have regulatory authority over before this downgrade. And so now these are sites that are medium-emitting sites. The state already, uh, of course, had an interest in emission reduction plans for large sites. Um, but these are small to medium sites that, because of the downgrade, are now under the state purview. So we have the ability to uh, work with the companies on emission reduction plans now. What are your thoughts on the cleaner burning gas that would have to be sold on the front range during the sort of height of ozone season? It's likely a more expensive fuel. Well, you know, what we are focused on, as you know, is supporting the uh, transition to electric vehicles. Already about 13% of vehicles sold in our state last month. We, through our bipartisan state infrastructure bill, set up the systems to develop not only additional charging infrastructure, but also support for people to get electric vehicles. We've now added electric vehicle charging stations at our state parks. So certainly, obviously, more fuel efficiency is great, better fuel formulation is great. But the real answer is uh, don't burn any fuel. And the more cars that do that, the better air will be. What do you say to people who hear you say, buy an electric car, and think, that's an elitist message coming from someone who is well off, well healed. Well, if you want to buy an electric car, buy an electric car. You certainly don't have to. It's a great choice because it saves people money. It's not only that you save, you zero out your gas costs. And in fact, the equivalency in electricity is usually about a, a quarter as much, about 20 to 30% as much to operate. But you also <clears throat> significantly reduce your maintenance costs and uh, over time. So, you know, people still have this misconception that electric vehicles are like high-end Teslas. Uh, they come in almost every vehicle category. They're a great option for people low and middle income to save money on their, on their transit. Much of your approach, really to all policy, but environmental policy in particular, is around the idea of incentives over mandates. And we got this listener question from Andy Cushion of Denver. Why do Colorado Democrats keep limiting to incentives their green initiatives and bills rather than phasing out by law? making illegal gas-powered lawnmowers and other high-polluting, ozone-contributing machines? Why do we enforce our way through an overdose crisis, which is going on right now, but only incentivize our way through the climate crisis? Governor, he's citing one particular example, a bill that would have banned gas-powered lawn equipment since been watered down. Uh, But you've gotten criticism from the environmental community over this broader question of incentives versus tougher regulation, carrots versus sticks, so to speak. Can you reflect on that balance in the face of what climate scientists call a now or never moment? Well, certainly in Colorado, no, you're not going to have the police going door to door checking what lawnmower you're using. I think that that concept is uh, very contrary to our values, which are values of, uh, you know, choice. And it's a free market. People can make the smart decisions to protect our air. And uh, the truth is that the technology is simply better and less expensive. So unless you want to pay more and and inhale fumes, uh, you're going to be going electric with a lot of your lawn lawn equipment, uh, if not now, then over the next few years. If the free market worked, would the EPA be downgrading our air quality? Well, I I think to be clear, um, we need the ability to reduce emissions where we can. And so, uh, you know, you don't, uh, pollution is a negative externality, which means there is a a government role in saying we need to make sure that you can't socialize your costs, right? You can't just say, uh, we're we're passing our costs on to the people in the form of poorer health. And so we are trying to, in support of the free market, adjust for those economic externalities and say nobody is allowed to socialize your costs. Uh, You have to be held accountable for the true cost of what you produce. 
And the accountability then comes through their pocketbook, you're saying? Yeah, it can come through the pocketbook or outright policies around what type of equipment you should or shouldn't be able to use in producing it to reduce emissions. And yet Democrats are not saying you can't use gas-powered lawnmowers at this point. That failed. Well, I don't think anybody wants the police to go door-to-door and arrest people for the <laughs> this lawnmower. Image of the I mean, police. that's just silly. I mean, that's, that's what you're, that's what this, that's what the you know, listeners are saying. We're going to ban them. Of course, no one's about to ban anything. I mean, as people use electric, people are going to be using, you know, gas-powered cars will be a novelty in 30 or 40 years, but they'll still be like people driving, you know, I have a 82, you know, Ford Mustang or something that runs on, uh, on gas. And it'll, there'll be, you know, one out of 100 cars will probably run on gas in 30 years. It'll be a novelty. There won't be very many filling stations. It'll be hard to find one. But if you look hard enough, I'm sure you'll be able to fill up your antique vehicle. That listener, Andy Cushion, invoked overdoses a few moments ago. There's a big debate going on in this building at the state capitol around fentanyl. About 700 people died of overdoses from it last year. Colorado's deaths are increasing faster than almost any other state. So last month, you were at a press conference to promote a bill that would have raised criminal penalties for dealers while getting users help. That approach mobilized a lot of law enforcement who argued that it'll take tougher penalties to get this under control. It seems that Democrats are moving toward that point of view now as they negotiate the bill. So a fundamental question for you, Governor, should penalties for possession of fentanyl be increased? Uh, Absolutely. I called for that in my state of the state address that we need criminal penalties for possession of fentanyl. You got to look at each drug separately. That's why I'm for legalization of marijuana. It's less harmful than alcohol, frankly, and it's absurd that it was ever illegal. Then you look at things like cocaine. You shouldn't use cocaine, but it's not likely to kill you when you use it. It kills some people, usually who have heart problems or with prolonged use. Fentanyl is extremely deadly, extremely deadly, killing people the first time they use it, killing five people at once. Of course, uh, you need additional criminal penalties than you would for cocaine or for other drugs. So you got to look at the science and data around uh, each drug and come up with the appropriate way to have a public policy framework that promotes public safety. The new proposal would felonize possession of more than a gram. Does that feel right to you? Yeah, I'm for. I'm certainly for felonizing any possession of fentanyl. It's deadly. It's killing people. But I will sign any bill that moves in that direction. And uh, I'm glad that law enforcement will have more tools to prevent these hundreds and thousands of deaths from occurring in our state. Now, to be clear, Ryan, when you have criminal penalties, it doesn't make the problem go away. I want to be clear that just because when when marijuana is prohibited, it wasn't like no one used marijuana, but it does give you another tool and being able to say, how can we trace this back to the dealer, the source where the person will cooperate and help lead up chain? Because what you really want to do is you want to get up chain. You want to get the smugglers and you want to get the dealers. And sometimes that involves making sure that you can bring the user to the table around cooperative arrangements where they reveal the sources of purveyors of this deadly poison. I want to play this from James O'Connor. He testified on the fentanyl legislation. He says felonizing possession would have made things worse for his late son who died of a fentanyl overdose. And if my son was told that, if he was felonized, he would have been broken and we would have been robbed of two years of love to and from him in our lives. Any number of folks would say the war on drugs didn't work the first time, and a new war on fentanyl is going to have the same results. What do you think, Governor? You know, you got to think of fentanyl more as a poison than a drug. You remember when people were sending around 
the toxins in the capital, the white powder uh, that was killing people. What was that? It was a oh anthrax, anthrax going right? To so the US you think of it more like anthrax. You don't say, okay, you have anthrax. We're gonna, you know send you to a place where we convince you not to have anthrax. You say, you have anthrax. That could, you know, do you realize that one gram of fentanyl can kill over a thousand people? That's what we're talking about here. I mean, this is not cocaine. This is not even meth. You this don't think it's poison. similar to crack, for instance? Absolutely not. Crack is an addictive drug. Fentanyl is a poison. Our regular interview with Colorado's Democratic Governor Jared Polis continues shortly. Why he's frustrated with the FDA on behalf of little kids and parents, plus... Do Democrats contradict themselves when they vow to fight climate change and, at the same time, fight to bring down gas prices? A quick fact check before we go to break. The governor said a gram of fentanyl can kill a thousand people. While fentanyl is lethal, he has overstated it. According to the AP, a gram can kill three to five hundred people. Let's get back to our regular conversation at the state capitol with Colorado's governor, Jared Polis. I want to talk briefly about COVID. You just sent a letter to President Biden urging him to speed up authorization of vaccines for children under five. It's about 250,000 kids in Colorado. Specifically, what more do you want the FDA to do? Yeah, I mean, look, the evidence is clear. Parents should be able to choose. I hear from so many parents of three-year-olds, four-year-olds, two-year-olds who say, why does my kid have to wait? It's bizarre. The safety has been demonstrated. And frankly, a reasonable level of efficacy has already been demonstrated for kids that are zero to five. So I don't know what's holding the FDA back from simply letting parents decide. Will you keep wearing a mask when you fly, Governor? Oh, I haven't thought about it. I'm going, uh, I'll be flying at some point in the next few months. Um... I don't know. I, I might. I, I mean, I've, as you know, been triple vaccinated. I'm not too concerned about COVID, but I haven't thought about it yet. But it probably depends where, where we are in terms of what the level of transmission is at that time. Let's talk about one of your policy priorities, free preschool for all kids. Lawmakers are expected to send that to you for your signature soon. Uh, obviously a benefit for the kids' families, uh, but it will cost the state about $365 million through 2024. What's the benefit to taxpayers overall? Well, preschool is incredibly important uh, for kids and kids who have high-quality preschool enter enter school uh, with better results over time, uh, lower grade repetition rates, higher graduation rates, long-term longitudinal studies have demonstrated that. It also saves parents money now, over $4,300 a year for parents of young children. And it also helps shore up many of our childcare providers for whom the preschool program is their flagship program that can allow them to serve kids from the whole birth to four continuum, which is so important for our workforce. And so in the end, you think this is a cost savings and an investment for all Coloradans yeah, to make. Uh, first of all, it's a workforce investment. For people to be able to work, they need affordable childcare. We have a worker shortage now in many sectors, and nobody wants to work just to pay childcare. They, 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 you want to make sure you get ahead by working, and making sure that your kid is a high-quality preschool is a linchpin of that. In addition, it benefits the kids, particularly uh, low-income families, uh, English language learners, and others uh, that receive even more benefit from having their kids start early. And it's an option for parents across our state that just makes life a little bit more affordable. You mentioned the worker shortage. Isn't that going to be true of the teachers for pre-K? 
Uh, Where are you going to find them? So we have another separate investment in in workforce around early childhood education. So absolutely, um, that's part of our overall strategy. Sites, we're looking at developing where we can, partnering with some of our state sites, including at community colleges, to establish on-site daycare for both students and faculty community colleges. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also have an investment in educator workforce and early childhood workforce to make sure that we're ready to provide a quality educator for every kid who wants one. Is it work that you think people want to do? especially ones who might be burnt out after the pandemic? I think there's a a lot of folks that that really love to work in early childhood. And and historically, it's been a very low wage area. So the question is, how do you professionalize? And when we're talking about preschool, quality preschool, it looks more like the benefits and salary of a teacher, of a first grade teacher, of a second grade teacher. So that's moving from that $15, $18 an hour childcare worker, getting the training and skills they need, the upgrade they need for those who have the heart for the work and want the knowledge for the work, uh, and then being able to have a professional vocation as a early childhood educator. The biggest source of funding for this early childhood program is a tax on tobacco and nicotine products. There's a move in the legislature now to ban flavored tobacco. You've opposed that. Is it because you want to protect the revenue source for early childhood? Well, you know, philosophically, as you know, Ryan, I support local control on a wide variety of of issues. And frankly, uh, exactly what gets sold with marijuana or nicotine or alcohol is a local decision. I'm against statewide prohibition of alcohol or marijuana or tobacco. But if a community doesn't want to have a dispensary or doesn't want to have vape, that is completely their prerogative. And I did sign a bill that gave that explicit authority to local communities around uh, vaping. They already have it with regards to tobacco and alcohol. Meanwhile, you have some local governments, I'm thinking of the mayor of Denver, Michael Hancock, who says, leave flavored tobacco to the state to regulate. Well, most mayors support local control, of course. So obviously, if the mayor wants to impact state policy, you can run for state legislature, but uh, very much up to local governments. And that's certainly uh, what I think is in the best interest of the state. I think the ethical conundrum some might see in this is that flavored tobacco is seen as something of a gateway to young minds. Um, and here you are paying to form those young minds with money generated by flavored products. Are you encouraging addiction by, you know, basing the revenue of state programs on these sorts of things? So it's also important to point out that some of the revenue from the tobacco tax, the vape tax, also goes towards anti-tobacco programs and addiction recovery programs. So it doesn't just go to early childhood. It goes to actually reducing tobacco usage. Is there any ethical issue for you there, though, in that rat's nest of funding? <laughs> well, I, I mean, the, you know, we, we, the, the general government funds come from a wide variety of, uh, we have, you know, gas taxes for vehicles, and we're trying to move to electric vehicles. We have sales taxes, there's uh, property tax, there's some that I don't like, like the income tax, which, you know, I'd love to abolish. Uh, but there's a number of different taxes across state government. And, uh, you know, there's a kind of walnut shells moving around. But I, what I, I'm proud of is that certainly some of the tobacco tax, some of the alcohol tax goes to, and also some of the gambling tax. These are vices. I'm totally supportive of them being legal, by the way. I'm not a prohibitionist. But I think it's completely appropriate that at least some of that tax goes towards education, um, addiction recovery, and prevention. You also propose to save people money by delaying a two cent per gallon fee on gasoline. It was supposed to start in July. Now you're saying wait until January. And so in a similar vein, I'd like to have you square something for us. You want cleaner air, but you're trying to keep the price of gas down. The Biden administration, meanwhile, announced laxer rules on ethanol to drop the price at the pump. 
are Democrats trying to have it both ways? Like, can you truly fight climate change, Governor, and do everything in your power to make gas cheap? Uh, yes, we must do both. Uh, we've got to make gas cheap because it's hitting families' budgets across the state. Now, look, the price of gas is going to be based on the international commodities. Um, you know, whether it's it's four dollars a gallon now, or close to it, because of the war in Ukraine, um, because of other external events. So, yes, if we have the power to save people two cents a gallon, does that help people? Yes. I've suggested suspending the federal gas tax, eighteen cents. Yes. Does the difference of whether it's three ninety or four mean whether people are converting to electric vehicles or not? No, of course not. It's the underlying price that affects people's decisions to convert to EVs. Suspending the tax is simply a way to provide relief to their pocketbook in the short term. We've got to make gas cheap. What do you say to the environmental community that says that absolutely cannot be squared with someone who wants to fight existential climate Well, I'm for making everything cheap. I think inflation is one of the biggest challenges the, the country faces. So I'm by no means singling out gas riot. I want to make eggs cheap. I want to make bacon cheap. And I don't even eat bacon. I want to make uh, gas cheap. I want to make your cars cheap. I want to make your home cheap. I want to make everything less expensive. So that's the framework that I view my job because, frankly, inflation and the rising cost of living is the number one issue that Coloradans face. And, of course, I've spent a good part of my time trying to come up with solutions. So it's not particular to gas. That's just one of many things that people buy. Uh, It's something that people have to buy, to be clear. They usually have to buy to get to work in most cases, just like food and other items. I'm I'm particularly proud of a bill around here, for instance, that will get rid of the sales tax around feminine hygiene items. That's great. It's something women have to buy. Let's get rid of the sales tax from it. Those kinds of bills will save people money. I think it's the right way to go. I want to wrap up with something that comes from an interview in the Colorado Sun over the weekend with Colorado House Speaker Alec Garnett. He has said he's 99% sure he's quitting politics for good after this legislative session. He's 39. He'd been widely viewed as a strong candidate for other offices. And here's what he told The Sun. Things have changed so much in the eight years since I first got into office. We don't know how to disagree anymore. It used to be that my phone number and address were public, and people would come sit on my front porch to tell me they disagreed with me or would vote for someone else. But we could at least talk and maybe change some minds. Now, because of death threats I've received, I have state troopers on my front porch. Governor, you've been in elected office for quite a while, from the State Board of Education onto Congress and now the governor's office. How would you characterize the change you've seen well, first, I certainly hope Speaker Alec Garnett has a, a future in public service. I wish him well in whatever he does. He's an amazingly talented leader here in our state legislature, able to bring people together, works very hard. He's doing that on, on reducing fentanyl deaths now, and we really appreciate his effort as a state. You know, I, I think what's frustrating to many of us in public policy is not that there are disagreements and opinions, but often there are, seems to be a lack of facts or a deliberate effort to avoid facts it's hard to even have a discussion about where we should be on policy. And I think that's what's frustrating in getting at many elected leaders. When someone walks into your office and they're not citing the facts and you see that, what, what conversation do you have? Have you found a way to bridge that? Well, I think really all you can do is you can try to, it, it just evolves the conversation to a recitation of the facts. Say like, here's this study, here's this study, this is what it does. I mean, something like, you know, vaccine efficacy would be an example. Yes, they work tremendously well at preventing severe incidences of COVID. And that's a fact you repeated over it's and over again. Fact. In the yeah, height of the it's pandemic. It's a very simple fact. It's, I mean, even with the high level of Omicron we had in our state, we had much lower hospitalizations. I mean, far lower than we had in previous waves because most of the population had been 
uh, vaccinated. And that's why we continue to have low hospitalization today uh, here in Colorado because of our high vaccination rate. I think we're at about 81% last time I checked. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a simple matter of getting the facts out. And, and now there's a reasonable policy discussion. You know, I've always believed that, you know, it's a personal decision. There's those who say it should be required and this or that. And that's a normative political discussion. But to say it doesn't work is not factual. It doesn't to say it somehow causes harm is not factual. Um, to say that the, the risk of a side effect is even order of magnitude close to the risk of the disease is simply false. So these are the falsehoods that we deal with every day. And I think you see that in a perhaps less life or death way on many other issues. Are you looking forward to a fourth shot? Looking forward to wouldn't be the right word. Um, <laughs> no, I, you, I, I, based on the iron? data, I, I have not had a fourth shot yet. Um, certainly, I think it's likely I might need to at some point. Uh, my parents, uh, who are in their late 70s, are uh, more actively considering doing that in the short term. Uh, but no, I haven't felt any need myself based on the data. The three shots seem to hold up pretty well, preventing severe incidences of COVID-19. And when that ends, uh, we'll, we'll certainly see that it ends. And I won't hesitate to get a fourth shot. But uh, as a relatively young, healthy person who's had three shots and also had COVID, it would be a reasonable choice for me to get one. But it's also a reasonable choice for me not to get one. Governor, thanks for having us in your office. Thank you, Ryan. Democratic Governor of Colorado, Jared Polis. We spoke Tuesday at the state capitol. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with the sounds wild animals make, how those sounds evolved, and what our guest calls the crisis of sensory extinction. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. The housing market, crime, justice reform, abortion access, and election rules. These things touch lives across Colorado, including yours, and all of them are shaped by the work of our state policymakers. Understand what's going on outside the state house to better understand what's going on inside in the CPR Politics Podcast Purplish, everywhere you listen. Creatures of our world have a lot to say. Our planet crackles with conversation and sound. But for hundreds of millions of years, life was silent. Not a peep, nor buzz, nor chirp. The remarkable evolution of animal sounds is the subject of a new book, Sounds Wild and Broken, The author is biologist David George Haskell, who wrote much of it while living in Boulder. David, welcome back to Colorado Matters. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Brian. We were just listening to your recording of the rainforest in Ecuador, a cacophony of creatures. I'm curious, what was the first living thing to communicate using sound, at least that we know of? (laughs) Yeah, and the, the, the important distinction is communicative sound versus other sounds, because, of course, right from the get-go, even the first microscopic single-celled beings were making tiny little sound waves as they moved around, and the first animals swimming in the oceans, their, their, their flippers, their feet, their teeth were all making incidental sounds. But mm. communicative sound, as you indicated, took a very, very long time to evolve. The first direct physical evidence that we have for communicative sound on planet Earth is a fossil of an insect wing. 
This is an insect that lived 270 million years ago. And on the fossilized remains of that wing, you can see a tiny little ridge with lots of little bumps on it. And those ridges and bumps are just like the ridges and bumps of modern insects, say katydids and crickets, that when they're rubbed together, when the wing, the base of the wings rub, it makes a little chirping or rasping sound. So as far as the fossil evidence goes, this is the first direct physical evidence. Of course, there may have been communicative sounds before that. We just haven't found the, the, the smoking gun, if you like, the, the, the imprint in the stone uh, that, that tells paleontologists that this was a structure at this particular time. Okay, so 270 million years ago, you say, and you write in the book, when we hear crickets in the park, we are transported to the first days of song on earth. I have to say, I'll never think of crickets the same way, David. <laughs> well, that's my hope for listening in deep time is, is asking questions about the you know, ages past, of course, is interesting for its own right, but also it reframes the experience of the everyday. When you know that insect sounds were some of the first terrestrial sounds, you, when you hear the crickets and the katydids in late summer, you, you have a different experience of that. These are very ancient august lineages of sound and then birds are, are much more recent and then what we're doing now which is using the human voice to communicate one with it, with another is much much more recent so every sound has a story behind it and an evolution so have you given much thought to how creatures big and small single celled and multi communicated before communicative sound is it, it does beg the question of what came before sound. Yes, and in fact, most of the other senses came before sound. So uh, early in animal evolution, even you know, 500 million years ago, there were animals with pretty complicated eyes and chemical senses. And, and even before multicellular animals evolved, there were single-celled beings that were communicating through chemical exchange, a little chemical zipping back and forth from one cell membrane to another. So chemical communication, probably tactile communication and mm -hmm. visual communication were all there early on. And so it begs a question, why did sound take so long? And of course, in the depths, the misty depths of time, it's sometimes hard to, to discern cause and effect. But it seems very likely that the, the cost of making sound is what kept the lid on song and calls and oh. other forms of communicative sound. The cost of sound in terms of being eaten. So predators right from the get-go, whether they were the first fish, trilobites, lobster-like beings in the, in the early oceans, all had little sensors on their bodies that could detect sound waves, particularly low-frequency sound waves. And the, these sensors are present still on, on modern-day animals. And in fact, that's what we're using when we hear little tiny hairs in the coils of our inner ears are descended directly from those sensors on, on the first animals to evolve on this planet. And so right from the get-go, hearing was pretty well developed. And that meant that making a sound was very costly. You might end up at someone else's lunch. So sound making only really got going when flight evolved or when solid defenses or other kinds of ways of, of avoiding the predation costs of making a sound. When those developed, sound happened and it's no no accident i think that some of the first fossils of sound making creatures that we know of are of flying beings particularly flying insects 
because those flying insects could get away from a spider or a, a scorpion or some other predator that was was honing in on their homing in on on their sounds. That's fascinating. So you needed both <laughs> to be able to make a sound and then escape when you made it, and flight's a good way to do that. Yes, and today, even today, you think about which creatures in the world make sound, which sing. Yeah. Frogs, well, they can jump away, but salamanders, their relatives, are totally silent. Snails, worms, jellyfish, pretty defenseless and slow. They're all silent. Birds, wolves humans you know we can we can run away and so being being agile and or having chemical defenses all of these things help sound making flourish did you see that news recently that mushrooms may be communicating to each other through electric signals did you see that yes fascinating (laughs) study where where uh, researcher put put electrodes in mushrooms and then measured the electrical uh, the electrical gradients that were, were happening within that. And what, what he found was that every few hours, these mushrooms send up a little spike of electrical energy. And so, you know, you see a sort of flat line or a little buzz and then a spike and a spike. And what that means is the membranes within the, the, the fungus, a bit like the, the, the nerve cells in our bodies, have, have a rapid exchange of charged particles across them. So the next step, though, is not just to know that, well, they're making these electrical signals, but is to analyze the temporal pattern of those signals and to compare them to human language. And this study found that the, the, the signals were arranged into word-like organizations that mm-hmm. followed particular patterns. Now, what these words and these high-level structures mean for the fungi, we do not know. But certainly that kind of structure is strongly indicative of a language in the same way that, for example, in the 1960s, when the first good recordings of whale sounds, like the famous humpback whale sounds that, that, were, uh, that Roger Payne and some of his colleagues put out in the 1960s as, a, as an LP, well, those whale sounds aren't just randomly produced. No, they follow this amazing hierarchy uh, where there are patterns and groupings on the level of minutes and hours and even days. And so they're, they're constructed in the same way that songs or symphonies are constructed within the human realm. And, you know, with the whales, we still don't know really what they're communicating to one another. Uh, and, and the same is true for the fungi. But I do think, you know, looking at the mold in the back of your fridge or a beautiful <laughs> fungus, a fungus growing out on a ponderosa pine out in the woods, we should have a new appreciation for the complexity and the the possibility within fungal life. I think we know exactly what it's saying. Clean me, Ryan. Clean me. <laughs> You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with David George Haskell, author of the new book, Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. David wrote much of the book while he was living in Boulder. You point out that when an animal adapts to a particular environment, uh, that it's true of the sounds they make as well. So why don't we play a recording you made in Colorado? What struck you when you first heard an elk bugle like that? (laughs) Well, you know, I first heard it, of course, up up in the Rocky Mountains. Mm And I was just astonished at how high-pitched this sound is. Uh, and if you draw a graph of 
the size of mammals against the sound, the frequency of the sound that they're making. Big mammals generally make lower pitched sounds the same way a cello sounds much lower pitched than a violin does. It's a general physical rule that big things make deeper sounds. And yet the elk has broken that rule. It's, it's singing at the frequency that is at about the same what you'd expect from a rabbit. So here you have a, a rabbit-like <laughs> voice emerging from one of the, the most large and impressive majestic creatures that we have in, in North America, at least on, on land. And why is that? It's because the, the sound of the wind in the mountains has impressed itself through evolution into the voice of the elk. The Rocky Mountains are some of the loudest forests in the world when the wind is blowing through them. Mm -hmm. when, when the wind gusts through the spruce and the fir at higher elevations or down in the ponderosa pines, the, a great roar emerges because the needles are so stiff. The needles are, are adapted to heavy loads of snow and ice. And so they're extremely stiff compared to needles of say pines out in california that have a much easier life of course you know those soft californians they don't know what real toughness is and <laughs> the trees in the rockies have a completely different form that is based on the architecture of their twigs and their need needles which makes them extremely loud when even a slight gust of wind blows through them that means that every animal in those forests has to deal with this masking band of low frequency sound it's almost like being in the middle of a busy city there's so much like rumbling going on so what does the elk do it sings at a frequency that is higher than the the low mire of sound that that, that surrounds it the same is true for other birds like the red cross bills that uh wander around the mountains looking for, for seed crops and breed in, in the spring and early summer, they too have songs that are higher pitched than you would expect for a bird of their size. Right. And, and these sounds of the Rockies were one of the most impressive demonstrations for me of a, of a more general rule in evolution. And that is that every animal's voice is adapted to its particular place, its home. Birds that live on the seashore, for example, sing and call to one another in a way that isn't interfered with too much by the, the sound of waves. Of waves, right. I mean, this, to me, was mind-blowing. I mean, we, we think, of course, as so much of nature being interconnected, but the idea, in a way, that an elk's vocal cords would have somehow adapted based on the sorts of trees and wind in its environment... Mm -hmm. Oh, boy, it's really a thing of beauty. And my mind kept being blown as I read Sounds Wild and Broken. Uh, so you indeed wrote much of this book while you were living in Boulder. And there are multiple recordings from Colorado. You climbed to 13,000 feet on Mount Audubon in the Indian Peaks Wilderness to record the White Crowned Sparrows. What did you notice about these songs? Well, the great thing, well, once you catch your breath, because of course, <laughs> once you climb up to 12, 13,000 feet, you're feeling that, or at least I am feeling the lack of oxygen up there. These birds seem unaffected. And of course, their, their blood and physiology is adapted to living up there. They live right there at Timberline. And every individual singing has its own voice. And if you just sit down on, on the side of the trail, which I did quite a lot to catch my breath, 
you can identify individual males by the pattern of the song that they're singing. Some have a little extra whistle or a flourish, or they start a little higher or lower than the others. And white-crowned sparrows are very distinctive, and even someone who's not particularly tuned to listening to birds can pick this up very easily. So we hear individual distinctiveness, and that's partly because the birds are very creative as they're learning their songs, they're picking up things, and, and kind of like jazz musicians coming up with their own riff, and then that riff becomes their signature song for the rest of their lives. But the, the other really cool thing about white-crowned sparrows is they also live up in Alaska. Some of them live down on the coast in California. Some live uh, further, further south in, in New Mexico. They have regional dialects. And so they have a, <laughs> a, a vocal culture the same way that, say, when I'm speaking, you can hear that I'm not originally from North America. Right? I grew up, I grew up in, in France, in Paris. I have uh, English parents. And so I have a, sort of an accent that locates me to a particular geography. The same is true for these birds is because they get their songs through vocal learning. There are cultural forces at play. They sound different, not because they're different genetically. And in fact, if you take an egg from Colorado and switch it with an egg from California, mm -hmm. the Californian little egg, when it hatches out into baby bird, would learn to sing like a Coloradan and the same thing with, with, the, with the reciprocal transplant. You are saying that there are valley girl sparrows, I think, <laughs> partly. Okay, let's take a break and talk more about the sounds that animals make, how those sounds have evolved, adapted over time. The book we are discussing by David George Haskell is called Sounds Wild and Broken. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Last year, CPR reporter Allison Sherry interviewed Elijah McLean's mother two years after her son's death in the custody of the Aurora police. Shanine McLean still copes with deep grief while she works to change policing. I'm not that kind of person to get on the bullhorn and uh, lead a bunch of people down the street trying to fight for rights that we shouldn't have to fight for. The story has now earned the prestigious Gracie Award. Find out more at CPR.org awards. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about sounds that wild animals make, animals large and small, how those sounds have evolved over time, how they have adapted to the environment that that critter lives in. Our, our guest, that is, is David George Haskell. He's written the book Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the crisis of sensory extinction. And that's what I want to focus on next, David. How does human noise, I think about airplanes flying over national parks, you know, how does that threaten the lives and the communication, frankly, of other living things? Yeah, I think the first thing to say about humans is that we have magnificent uh, vocal capabilities, right? So we have this extraordinary ability to turn tiny sound waves in air into meaning, which we do through human language, and into meaning through instrumental music. And so, so we're the great sort of creative, one of the great creative products of, of biological and cultural evolution on this planet. And then simultaneously, we're also the great sonic destroyers. <laughs> because when we pump tons of noise out into an environment. Sometimes that noise level is to a point where other creatures cannot hear one another. And because sound is so important in, in 
connecting parents to offspring, helping mates find one another, keeping social groups together. For many species, sound is the, the life-giving link that holds their societies together. When that sound is blocked by noise, the society falls apart and animals cannot live and thrive. And we think of, of course, noise in, in cities is, is the, our most common experience here for, for we humans, but noise is also present below the waves. And one of the most severe places where the sonic crisis is unfolding is in the oceans, because even though we, we may live in land, and I'm talking to you now from, from Tennessee, I lived in Colorado, but look around my room here, and even though I can't see this here, hours away, most of the stuff in this room is actually made in Europe or in Asia and came to me on a shipping container. Oh. And so the orcas, the whales, the snapping shrimp, the below the water creatures all heard me, even though they might be outside my imagination at, at the moment. So, so noise is causing a crisis both on land and in the seas. I think of dark sky designations, which are increasingly popular in Colorado. That has to do with light pollution and places that reduce their light noise, if you will. I get these special designations are celebrated. Tourists mm -hmm. go so they can actually see the stars. Is there some version of that with sound? There are a couple of versions of that. For example, the Great Sand Dunes um, are one of the quietest places in Colorado because there, there aren't any direct flight routes over there. And there's, there's the, the mountains are there kind of blocking a, a lot of other sounds. So one of the, the quieter places. And also there's just not too many singing birds or insects either in, in the sand dunes. So, so very quiet, not silent, of course, because the, the wind is blowing on, on the sands. And so, yes, we, we need more acoustic awareness of, of quiet, but, but also just of the glories of sound. For example, the, the, the amazing ways in which the vitality of the earth is, is revealed through its many songs. We should celebrate that. And for example, in Japan, they have this uh, project called the 100 Soundscapes of Japan, where they've nominated particularly interesting cultural and natural sounds in different parts of the country. Mm. And... People go visit them to experience the, the marvels of the human and more than human world in relation to one another. In terms of the other aspect of this, though, is that noise is about injustice. And yes, it's good to get away into the very quietest place we can find away from human noise. But the bigger issue, I think, with noise on land is that noise, the burden of noise is unequally distributed within our communities. Hmm partly as a result of, of city planning that directly targeted low-income and minority communities. Those communities have got the busy highways, the bus depots, the other places that make a lot of noise and make a lot of particulate air pollution were deliberately placed in locations uh, where uh, it generally it wasn't the wealthy white people who, who were living in those places. Oh. Uh, so noise pollution is, is a question of injustice within the human community as well. So I think there is more awareness of that now and also more awareness that noise isn't just an, an annoyance. It directly harms our psyches and our bodies. For example, in Europe, they've estimated that 48,000 new cases of heart disease can be directly attributable to the physiological stress caused by urban noise. Wow. In schools that are noisy and next to noisy highways or railways, students don't learn as well. 
So noise is a, is a, is a real problem. It's not a, just something sort of an inconvenience or a slight annoyance. It actually affects people's lives in very direct ways. We have just about a minute. Um, so much quieted down, uh, I guess, literally and figuratively during the pandemic. Was there some sense that that had an effect on animal life in, in the last few moments here? Yes, there's good evidence that, that whales and birds actually changed their songs to fit in with, with that newfound silence. But also people started turning their attention back out to the living world. And I think that's one thing we need to hang on to as we move back into the next stage of the pandemic is keep listening. This notion of sonic tourism is fascinating to me, that you might visit a place specifically to listen to it. Uh, maybe yes, it's... we do that with music, right? So yeah. amazing <laughs> music festivals in Colorado. People should also travel to Colorado and from Colorado to other places to listen to the magnificence of the Earth's sounds. Well, thank you so much for your time and for sharing the book with us, David. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. I wish you many great sounds this spring. Biologist David George Haskell is a professor at the University of the South. His new book, much of it set in the Rockies, is called Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. Shall we have just like a moment of silence? Just a moment. Okay. Before we go, another Red Rocks regret. That is, a show you missed at the Crimson Concert Venue and wish you hadn't. Ali Leba of Littleton says for her it was the Go-Go's, the all-female rock band. They played Red Rock several times in the 1980s. And she writes, My mom wouldn't let me go and said, I don't care if Jesus Christ himself is going, you are not. Leba says it's been about 40 years and she's still bitter. That is Colorado Matters for today with thanks to a team that's all I ever wanted. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.